Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. Amanda, recently you went out with Steve Blanford, who is our state soil scientist. I did not know we had a state soil scientist. We do, absolutely. So Steve works with the United States Department of Agriculture's Natural Resources Conservation Service. Um, Some of our listeners might um, know that that agency was formerly known as the Soil Conservation Service. Some of our um, landowners and farmers in Kentucky still might refer to it as the the SCS office. Um, And, um, but yes, Steve is the state soil scientist. And when you were out with Steve, you were talking about something that I personally don't have a lot of familiarity with because I did not grow up in crop agriculture, uh, but that is cover crops. Right, so we've talked about um, livestock agriculture a little bit on this podcast previously, and um, we also wanted to talk a little bit about row crop production. And so Steve has some experience with cover crops, so let's listen to him talk about um, just some of the basic concepts of um, crop production, and then why we might use cover crops. Water is our number one limiting factor on growing crops, but we have to get the water into the soil. Of course, if we can increase our aggregate stability and create better structure in our soil, the water moves in instead of running off. So Steve just talked about aggregate stability. And so for soil scientists, and I'm sure we have lots of soil scientists in our listening audience, there, you know, those are terms that we use fairly commonly, but might be a weird term to to all the rest of our listeners. So, um, let me just talk a little bit about what that means. And so, if you think about if you're in your garden and you, you know, use a shovel or a hand trowel and you dig up, you know, some soil, the way that soil breaks apart into chunks, for lack of a, a better term. Um, we call those soil aggregates. And so when those soil aggregates are interacting with water, those are a place where we have water and air exchange. And that's important for roots that grow there, right? So um, the stability of those aggregates is important because if those particle or those clods or chunks, if they all break apart, then they would break apart into those individual particle sizes. And that can lead to compaction. So that's why we're concerned about aggregates, kind of those particles sticking together into aggregates, because those arrangements then ensure that we've got pore space in those soils. So we've got water and air that can exchange. Well, again, we want the water to move into the soil and not off. If we have good aggregate stability, the water has the ability to infiltrate and not run off. So we'll talk a little bit too with Steve of of going from that concept of aggregate stability and how we might improve that in a cropping situation. The first reason we use cover crops is to prevent erosion. Initially, if you can't have a soil, you can't farm it. And secondly, if you can increase your soil structure, you increase the amount of water that moves into the soil and not off into our streams and lakes. Amanda, one of the things Steve talked about was cover crops helping with erosion, and I can see that, right? It's like a plant blanket on the ground. It keeps the rain from moving the soil around. But exactly how does a cover crop 
help with this concept of soil structure and aggregate formation? Yeah, it is kind of a strange concept to think about because, you know, so we got a plant growing there. So what does that have anything to do with what the soil is doing below? Because we always think of a plant as using resources from the soil, not necessarily giving back to the soil. And what we have to remember are those growing roots actually can secrete sugars, enzymes, um, glomulin, I think is the, the term that Steve used to describe it. And essentially it's like a glue that, it, or s some sort of sticky substance and it helps those particles stick together. So let's listen to how he describes why those glues are important and how they um, improve soil aggregate stability. Cover crops, uh, first and foremost, to prevent erosion Secondly, as the roots grow, they release enzymes and sugars and starches, and those hold the individual soil particles together, creating good soil structure and aggregate stability so that you can get an air and water exchange for your soil. Amanda, Steve talks about cover crops, um, but they're probably not grass exactly like I'm thinking. What is a cover crop? So if you think about a traditional cornfield, we'll say. So, you know, corn is planted in the spring, it's harvested in late summer, early fall, and then we have a field that's not growing anything actively. And so that's the time that we want to have a some sort of plant growing in that in that maybe traditional fallow phase where nothing is growing through the late fall and winter time, um, we want something in the ground growing that can help hold the soil in place, prevent erosion. And that's where a cover crop comes in. It's kind of like the off-season crop. You know, the corn would be our cash crop, what we're going to sell market for hopefully a profit. Um, and the cover crop is what we're going to have on. And like you said, it's kind of like a plant blanket. It's gonna um, protect the soil through the, the year when we don't have an active cash crop growing. Man, how do you decide what to make your cover crop? So I assume that if you're planting the corn and that's your cash crop and you're gonna sell it, but you plant something afterwards to help during the winter months, so it's obviously gotta be a plant that can tolerate that, um, but you're gonna come back again and plant corn a second time. So how do you decide what to use for a cover crop? And that's a really good question. And I'll be honest, Carmen, I am no expert on cover crops. I've learned a lot in the last few months just about that myself. But essentially what you're doing is you're planting something, like you said, that's winter hardy or can at least tolerate the cold months and maybe goes into a dormant phase um, during the cold months. Um, but is a little hardier than your cash crop. And you're gonna want something that um, one can germinate in you know, the late fall um, or maybe even late summer, early fall. Um, and it, in a lot of times what, um, what our scientists are recommending now is a bit of a mix. And I've heard some of our producers talk about a cover crop cocktail where it's a blend of species that they put out and each of those species of plants give a different benefit. So it could be a grass of some sort that would have a pretty dense root system or lots of small roots, we'll say that, um, that could be there. It might even be something like turnips or radishes. Um, there's something that um, we call a tillage radish, also a, a dacon radish. Sometimes you eat those. They're those really long white radishes I've, I've eaten them before through a 
CSA program. And so, um, but that is a, a radish that gets a really long taproot. And so that might be used um, to create, to help um, break up some of the heavier structured soils, but then also as that plant dies in the winter and into the early spring, it's going to create some porosity there. Um, they might also incorporate a legume, so something that's a nitrogen fixer that could get some growth on it in the early winter time, might go dormant, but then in the spring when it's still cool and too cool for your cash crop, that crop could grow and be getting some soil benefits. When I was in school, I was kind of taught that that was one of the things we had to do is prepare the soil and we needed good seed to soil contact to grow a crop. Um, but maybe that's not the best approach anymore for production and for in terms of row crops. Do you I, agree or disagree? I would completely agree. And I think the reason that we used to prepare that seed bed before is our planters didn't have the capacity to get that good seed soil contact without tillage. Whereas the newer equipment that we have, you can get that seed to soil contact without the excessive tillage. Amanda, I'm guessing there are a lot of issues timing wise with putting in a cover crop. Um, you've got to get your cash crop planted, it's got to grow, you need to harvest it. When you put the cover crop in, I'm sure that has to do maybe with the type you put down and your, your seasonal temperatures and things like that. How in the world do you get this in there and not damage your cash crop? Well, I have some of those same questions. So I asked Steve about that because, um, you know, I was, you know, really taught about kind of traditional tillage and why we till, um, you know, is to get that good seed soil contact. So let's listen to how Steve responds to that question. Of course, our cover crops, uh, there's a couple of different ways you can seed them. You can broadcast them or you can drill them. And uh, obviously when you drill, it's a little more effective because of the seed soil contact. So Carmen, what I'm hearing from Steve is that there are a variety of ways that we can seed in cover crops. And really it's up to the producer to decide what works best on that operation. Um, they may drill in the seed with a, a no-till planter. They may broadcast the seed of cover crops. I've, I've even, um, you know, read about some producers that are in the Midwest that because of their shorter growing season, they need to get their cover crops into the field, you know, earlier in the fall maybe than what we do here in Kentucky, which means they've got to get the seed in before they harvest their cash crop. And so there's a variety of different methods that producers are, are researching and, um, and experimenting with to see the best benefit. Steve? brings up a lot of different variables it sounds like when you're thinking about cover crops. If I'm a producer and this is something I haven't done before or if I'm interested in getting involved with it, what kind of resources are out there for me? Well that's a good question Carmen and it's not just that there are lots of different moving parts so to speak. Cover crops can also be expensive because you're essentially buying another crop of seed, right? And so that's an, ex an expense upfront for farmers that they may or may not be willing to tolerate. And, um, but there are some cost share opportunities available. There are some cost share options through the Environmental Quality Incentive Program or EQIP program where we will provide a subsidy for growing the cover crops. Uh, it just kind of helps offset the costs because it does cost money to grow cover crops and that could affect your economics on the other side. So Carmen, the next thing that Steve talks about and, and maybe really one of the 
main drivers of using cover crops is looking at soil health. So let's hear what Steve has to say about, first of all, what soil health is, and then also, you know, why and how cover crops can contribute to that. Define soil health. Soil health being the ability of the soil to sustain its intended use. And for our farmers, that intended use is to grow crops so that we can feed everybody and make money while they're doing it. We keep hearing the term soil health, and when I think of health, I'm naturally thinking back to my health or other people's health. And Steve had a really interesting way of kind of making us think about soil health as it relates to maybe human health. Of course, our cover crops you can think of in, in several ways, but think of a bare soil as a soil that is naked, thirsty, and running a fever, and hungry as well. Whereas, you know, you know, the sun is baking it, possibly hurting your microorganisms in the soil. Uh, evapotranspiration is uh, taking away your soil moisture and it's susceptible to erosion. Whereas if you have residues and cover crops, it is cooler in temperature, have more available water and less erosion. Carmen, I've heard Steve describe these, um, these characteristics of soil health before and sometimes audiences get a little chuckle out of, of how he you know, says that soils are naked, thirsty, hungry, and running a fever, uh, but it does really make sense. And you know, some of the, the images that come to my mind are you know, a soil that has no plants growing on it whatsoever, maybe has, you know, maybe it's been tilled or maybe it hasn't been, or maybe it has a plant or a crop growing in it, but there's areas that are eroding out and really what we're looking at is subsoil, the topsoil's gone, and it just really decreases the ability of that soil to do what it's supposed to do. And like Steve previously said, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have the ability to serve its purpose or provide its, for its intended use. Um, so Steve also goes on to talk about what he calls the principles of soil health management systems. Uh, of course, the five principles of a soil health management systems is no tillage, cover crops, diversity of cover crops, living root 365 days a year, and application of animal waste if available. If you can work through those concepts, you will improve your soil health, therefore improving your overall profits on the farm. So what Steve just described really is utilizing cover crops to, to have roots that are living roots that are working in the soil all year long, not just during the cash crop season. He also mentions um, utilizing animal waste. And that's because there's nutrients in the animal waste and also to the other benefit that that brings to soils is organic matter and really increasing organic matter um, and providing that as a benefit throughout the year. So some of our listeners might be thinking, okay, okay, so soil health, it's healthy, it's not healthy. How, how do we determine whether it's healthy or not? And so I know some of our researchers here on campus have been working on um, how do we measure soil health? And one of the best ways that we can do that, at least at this point, is to look at our soil organic matter. Probably the easiest measurement of soil health would be our organic matter in the soil. It's something that a lot of people know about and it's relatively easy to test for. And it's kind of an indicator of where we're at with the carbon in our soil. If you'll go through your local extension service and they will send it to regulatory services over at the University of Kentucky and it's a routine test. 
Well, Steve talked about sending samples to UK Regulatory Service, and that obviously takes time. Is there, is there a quick in-the-field test somebody could do? Well, there is a test that you can do that's more of a visual assessment, and I would say it's probably more of a qualitative test than it is a quantitative test. When we send our soil samples to our regulatory services, we're going to get numbers back and some analysis of what is, you know, in the soil. Um, but Steve talks a little bit about a slake test. We'll hear him describe this slake test that you can do in the field and get a visual assessment of your soil. The slake test, what it does is you take a clod from the soil and you submerge it in water to see whether it stays together or dissolves apart. If it stays together because the enzymes and the glues and the starches holding the individual soil particles together, you have a good soil structure. If it falls apart in the individual soil particles, you have poor soil structure, thus poor infiltration. So we'll put a link in the show notes of, to some video where you can actually see this slake test. It's kind of fascinating. I've used it in the classroom before. Um, and you just submerge a clod of soil you know, into water, into a, a, a clear you know, glass of water. And you can watch as you know, the water moves in. And sometimes those, those you know, the, part, the soil just kind of shatters almost and breaks into these individual particles. And that's because there's none of that glue, those plant glues we talked about earlier, those aren't there to hold the soil in place. So you can imagine that during a rainfall event, that's what's gonna to happen to your soil. It's going to break apart into these individual particles and then it's more likely to run off. And, um, and we have more erosion that occurs. So that's kind of a long roundabout story of why it's important to have cover crops and how it really ties back to water quality. All right, when we think about cover crops and sustainability in general, we're not really thinking about this year or next year. We're thinking about generations to come, our children and our children's children and so forth on down the line. So hopefully it's a big picture, not just a this year, next year thing. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KYH2O.